to the Human Biology Association podcast. My name is Christopher Lin, and I'm a biocultural medical anthropologist from the University of Alabama. And I'm Kara Akabak, and I'm a biological anthropologist from the University at Albany. And uh, we are, both Chris and I, part of the Public Relations Committee for the Human Biology Association, and we decided to put together this podcast uh, with the hopes of putting the spotlight on new research and emerging scholars in our own field. And we hope to connect the research and the researchers a little bit more with popular culture. For instance, both of us have been listening to a lot of podcasts lately of various types, including science podcasts. And it just so happens that one of us, actually both of us, know another researcher who has also been listening to a lot of podcasts. And in many ways, it's transformed how he goes about doing his research and the teaching that he's doing. Yeah, so our first guest is going to be Dr. Sean Rafferty, who is an archaeologist also from the University at Albany, uh, because we are not above using resources at our own university to get this project off the ground. Uh, But not only is he an archaeologist, but uh, he's pretty fascinated with skepticism and teaching his students and colleagues to be skeptical of the information that they are bombarded with on a daily basis. And uh, Sean was kind enough to do a Science on Tap uh, here in Albany uh, on the on how to smell bullshit, which is Fundamentals of Skepticism. And he did this talk back at the end of March of 2017 uh, to a huge, huge standing room only crowd. And uh, we're so thankful for him to join us for an interview to talk about his uh, Science on Tap talk of skepticism. And I should admit that I know Sean not just because I got a chance to talk to him when I was recently at uh, Albany giving a talk of my own, but I'm a graduate of the University at Albany, so Sean was actually one of my professors when I was a grad student there, and I'll butter him up when he's in the studio with us by reminding him that he taught the single most beneficial class I ever took, which I cajoled him into teaching, a class on cognitive archaeology. All of this is to say that our first podcast is an incredibly inbred podcast. And subsequent podcasts are likely to be the same, (laughs) as it turns out. How are we doing? So yeah, I want to thank Daniel and the Beer Abbey for having us. I want to thank all you guys for coming out on on a rainy Tuesday to listen to me blather along about what I do. Um... And, uh, yeah, so this is, this is great. Um, so, yeah, Sean Rafferty, that's me, I know that much. Um, anthropology, anthropology is the study of humanity in all its glory. I personally, by training, am an archaeologist, so I basically special, uh, specialize in digging up old garbage and trying to figure out what the people who made the garbage were, uh, were doing. Um, not talking about any of that tonight, though. Um, I have a little bit of a, a parallel career in my, um, in my, uh, in my teaching, and I kind of got into it through uh, the birth of the new media. Once, uh, once podcasts got to be a thing, I realized that you could use every waking moment walking around consuming knowledge, um, and that's kind of what I do. And one of them, uh, and a lot of the podcasts that I gravitated towards had to do with this phenomenon of skepticism. Now. 
How many people in the room have heard of the skeptics movement or of the free thinkers movement or the free thought movement? Yeah, okay, a lot of, um, a little bit of preaching to the choir tonight for those who, uh, uh, for those who have, and for those who doesn't, who, who haven't, we'll call it a, um, a bit of a, a bit of an introduction. So, what it kind of did for me was it kind of let me realize that there were words for names for something I already was. Um, i.e. a skeptic, but that I didn't really, um, didn't really know. Uh, and as I've been grappling with that since then, I've come to realize that um, I began to think, you know, if, if there was something I could do, if there was some way that I could um, help make uh, people realize how much nonsense there is in the world and that there are techniques and ways to... Um, to uh, to figure out the nonsense from the non nonsense, the bullshit from the uh, from the truth. I already they're taping me, and I already asked if I can curse, and they said yes. So um, I'll be working a little little blue tonight, maybe baby blue. Um, and I thought, yeah, if only there was a, if only I had a venue, if only I had a job where I could actually have large numbers of people have to sit there and listen to me talk about stuff. And then I realized, oh shit, I do have one of those jobs. I'm a professor, so um, I began offering classes in skepticism. And I kept waiting for the university administration to say, aren't you an archaeologist? What's this stuff? And that never happened. And it's become more and more, now it's about half of my, uh, half of my teaching. So I was really happy when, um, when Kara asked me to, um, uh, to, to give this talk. So let me, um, two things I want to get through today. One is to talk a little bit about what skepticism is, what is meant by that word, what the movement consists of. Um, from there, we're going to move to... Um, talking about ways in which people make mistakes, where anybody can make mistakes. And I don't mean like, oops, you know, or, or you know, missed it, uh, uh, an addition or something, but ways in which we systematically misinterpret the world around us, the way, ways in which we systematically misunderstand uh, reality, ways in which you yourselves are subject to all of those same, um, those same problems. Those same, uh, those same issues. Or, as I say, how to smell bullshit. Not necessarily somebody else's, your own or somebody else's. And um, why, why that's important uh, to, um, uh, to do so. Okay, so moving along. Hopefully this will work. Uh, okay, so what is a skeptic? When we say the term skeptic, right off the bat, there's the vernacular, the kind of common understanding of expressing doubt about something, and that's kind of some of the philosophical roots going back to uh, ancient Greece, the skeptics, um, kind of in the post-Aristotle uh, Hellenistic period, where philosophers who were basically arguing, you know, fuck it, can't know anything, can't know anything for, tr for truth, um, kind of an early, uh, a pre-post-modernism, uh, and that's not really what we're, what we're coming from there. Um, so we don't mean it in the vernacular, I doubt this, I'm skeptical of your claim, uh, or we don't mean it in the, the classical Greek um, philosoph uh, philosophy. We definitely don't mean it in um, the way, this doesn't really show up very well, um, we don't mean it in the sense that just that this gentleman used the term uh, skeptic. Um, I hear somebody laughing, so somebody knows who this is. Who is, who, who is this? Snowball, Snowball congressman, yeah, senator. Actually, that's that's Senator James Inhofe, um, Republican of um, Oklahoma, and uh, 
he was expressing his skepticism of global climate change by bringing a snowball to the Senate floor and saying, basically, look, it's snowing outside right now, therefore climate change is a vast liberal conspiracy to undermine business interests. Um, I also, this, is, this next is a little unfair, but I hope you'll bear with me because there's a broader point. Um, I also don't mean skepticism uh, in the sense that, that this individual has expressed. This is Jill Stein, uh, Green Party uh, candidate. Uh, medical doctor, generally I don't have a, a, a I, I've never had an issue with her um, until she began to kind of uh, um, pander a bit to uh, anti-vaccination interests, people who uh, are skeptical, it was the word they would use, of the effectiveness and the safety of, um, of vaccines. Now, I don't think that Dr. Stein herself is a vaccine skeptic, uh, but she wasn't, but it wasn't a deal breaker for her to deal with them either. So, so she's, she's up there as well. The reason I put them both up there is because I, it was hard put to think of two more politically opposed people who were still part of the same reality. Um, although maybe they aren't part of the same reality. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that coming to conclusions that are completely at odds with the fact, and again, suffice it to say, the, the, the vast majority of scientific evidence is that yes, the climate is changing and yes, humans are a big part of it and that yes, vaccines are safe and effective and no, they have nothing to do with, um, uh, with autism. I know, big news. Um, so these people have, are very smart and credential people but they've come to very, very unfactual, irrational, unscientific um, uh, beliefs. So being wrong is not a partisan issue. It's not a Republican, it's not a liberal, it's not a Green Party, it's not a Democratic issue. It's a human issue. It's something which any of us can, um, can fall victim to, especially if they have not had the benefit of um, you know, some basic education in specific areas, not knowing what to think, but not knowing how to think. So when I say skeptic, I'm talking more in the sense of the phrase this guy would use it. I'd be very impressed if anybody know who, who that is. Hume. Hume, all right, nice, well, go ahead. Kudos to you, sir, yeah. That's David Hume, um, David Hume Enlightenment philosopher um, from 1711 to 1776, the um, Enlightenment period of history where people first began to say, maybe there's more out there besides um, uh, the Bible or what um, the ancient Greeks said. Maybe we can actually use facts and evidence to understand uh, reality. And um, Hume was probably in, you know, one, of the, one of the most... Uh, uh, empirically grounded of the Enlightenment philosophers. And um, he's got a great, a great quote that I, I want to get a t-shirt of someday, but it says, um, a wise man apportions his beliefs to the evidence. I don't like the word belief, um, but, but um, the, the sentiment there is, is, uh, is solid. The idea that it's the evidence that matters. People don't tend to think that way. We tend to come to conclusions, often conclusions that are reached for irrational reasons, emotional snap judgments, um, conclusions that fit with um, ideological predispositions. And then we make the evidence fit those conclusions 
after the fact, when it should be just the opposite. We should look to see what the data is on a topic and then make our decisions on whether or not we, uh, on whether or not we accept that data. So my definition of, of a skeptic, and mind you, the skeptics community, they say it's like herding, it's like herding particularly ADD herds of cats. Um, you, you ask 10 skeptics to get a definition of what it is they do, you'll get 20 different definitions. But the one that I made up an hour ago um, is a skeptic is someone who lives their lives based on the logical evaluation of evidence to the greatest extent possible, because we are all human, and in that regards, someone who's also aware of their own cognitive limitations. So someone who lives an evidence-based life, but is also aware of their own potential to get it wrong, and is willing to take steps to avoid that, um, hopefully, uh, before, uh, before it even happens. So um, why then does this, uh, why is this even an issue? Why are we even talking about this? Why? There's a, there's a great book out by Michael Shermer, um, edit, uh, editor of Skeptic Magazine. And the book's called Why Do People Believe Weird Things? Um, he, he, of course, is a neurologist, has a lot of very uh, materialist neurological reasons for that, some of which I agree with. But why? Why do so many people passionately believe things that are completely irrational and are contradicted by established facts. Not stuff that is open for interpretation, not things that, well, okay, we'll have to agree to disagree on, on, uh, uh, on this. Things that are just, just wrong, that are known to be wrong, and yet they passionately believe uh, in, in those things anyways. Um, why, why is this? Is it because they're stupid? Exactly, right? It's e I mean, that'd be easy, right? It'd be easy if, if it was just the stupid people who believed weird things. Then you could just not be with those people or get them an island or something like that, you know? Um, but that's not it. It's not just because some people may be, you know, lower on the IQ scale or, or, uh, uh, or, or what have you. It's got nothing to do um, with, um, with intellect. Um, maybe it's a lack of education. Can you perhaps... If you, if you were to just, you know, give, the, if someone has a weird idea, you know, somebody, uh, you know, Senator Inhofe, if I could get, get a moment with him and I could say, you know, look, here's, here's all the evidence for climate change. Here's a giant stack of research papers and here's the, the curriculum vita of all the climate scientists. Um, and I educate him on why he's wrong. At the end of that session is uh, after he said, you know, who are you and why are you in my office? He would, um, you know, he's, he's not going to be like, oh, well, yes, thank you for educating me, Dr. Rafferty. I, I stand corrected, and um, let, me go and let me go and tell the Senate that we should really, you know, cut back on this whole fossil fuel thing. No, no, that's not going to happen. Um, education isn't the, isn't the issue. Um, intellect uh, isn't uh, the issue. In, in, in fact, bizarrely, perversely, it can work just the opposite. In fact, very smart very educated people can be even more subject to believe in nonsense claims than people who aren't as intelligent or aren't as, uh, as educated. Um, I've actually studied that, and the, in the belief, in, in, like belief in the paranormal actually goes up with the more degrees, the more letters you have after, after your name. 
And I don't know if anybody's actually studied why that's the case. My, my hypothesis is that people just get better and better at rationalizing their irrational beliefs and convincing themselves that they're right when they're, when they're, um, when they're obviously wrong. So it's not a matter of intelligence. And it's not purely a matter of education. I would argue that you can educate people, but as opposed to simply pouring knowledge down their heads, you have to educate them in the proper ways to use that knowledge, not tell them what to think, but help people learn how to think. But why are we this way? Why do very smart people believe strange things? Because of this guy. Yeah, right. I thought about it, it's maybe not a very good example to use, and I'll tell you why in a second, but um, this is a still from the great Stanley Kubrick masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, where the, uh, the apes are just beginning to learn how to utilize technology, and then they use that to go forth and get new food and maybe kill a few neighbors and so forth. Um, the point I'm making about this is all the ways in which we make mistakes are not accidental. We evolve to make mistakes in these particular ways. It's not a very good example because he learned how to do all that because aliens messed with his DNA. So maybe that maybe maybe it really was aliens. I don't know. Um, but anyways, the, the reason I the reason I, I, I picked this is is to make a broader point. We evolved as flawed individuals, and that sounds a little weird to some people. People who don't have a background in evolution, or even in, 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 um, in biology, often have some misunderstandings about, um, about evolution. I know several of my, of my um, biological anthropology <laughs> colleagues are in the audience, so I'm going to step very carefully in the next few lines. Um, but there's a perception that evolution works in a directed fashion, that we're, we're moving towards perfection, and that if there's an evolved trait the human eye, um, our backs, our brains, that they've evolved to be the best that they can be. And that we're evolving towards some kind of direction. You know, what a, work, what a, what a piece of work is man. That, that we are the sum, um, the sum direction of evolution over, over millions of years. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Evolution is not directed and it is not perfect all evolution does is it makes sure that you are just good enough to keep going, just good enough to be a little bit better than your immediate competitors, hopefully good enough to have successful, viable offspring. Evolution doesn't give a shit if you get the right answer. It just cares whether you survive to reproduce. And if you can survive to reproduce in a state of profound delusion about reality, evolution is fine with that. It just doesn't care. It doesn't matter. As a result, we actually evolved to make mistakes in a range of areas. Let me give you one of my favorite examples. Um, statisticians talk about uh, type 1 versus type 2 errors. So um, a type 1 error is a situation where you have a false positive, where you think something is real and it actually turns out not to be. That's one kind of mistake. Second kind of mistake is, as you may guess, and very imaginatively named, um, is, a, is a type 2 error, which is a, um, a false negative. You think something isn't real, <coughs> but it is. Okay, so that all sounds very abstract, but let's look at it in an evolutionary sense. Let's look at it in the sense of 
the concerns of this guy. This guy living in a small group of social primates, very dependent on one another, living in a hostile and uh, unsecure environment um, with a lot of threats, particularly from other primates and from, uh, from, from wild animals. Okay, uh, funny noise out beyond the, uh, beyond the firelight outside the cave. Type one error. I think there's something out there. Clearly it's the, uh, the monster in the dark, so I shouldn't go out there. Okay. Now there is no monster in the dark. It's an irrational belief that this guy has invented to explain why he's not going out of the cave. His wife is like, get out of the cave. He's like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going. Monster will get me. What is the cost if then, you know, his friend Carl, the ape man, comes in and is like, hi, it was me, you know, just messing with you. Um, you know, he might look a little dumb. His wife's going to rag on him, whatever. He looks like a jerk, you know. Say again? Oh, you're ordering food. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. Okay. Uh, so the, um, so the, um, the cost to him is minimal. It's, it's, you know, social cost. Now, suppose, suppose he's like, okay, there's nothing in the area. There is no, if he's, if he's the skeptical monkey, this, and I realize he's an ape, by the way, I just, monkey's more fun to say. Um, if he's the skeptical monkey, uh, who's like, oh, well, you know, there's, uh, we, we know that the, uh, the lions are not, are not in this vicinity at this time, so I'm sure that there's nothing out there. I'm going to go see and, oh, shit, it's a bear. Oh, you know, and he gets eaten. Okay, so he made a type two error. Okay, he thought there was nothing there and there was something there and, he, and his ass got eaten for it. Okay, so which of those two errors is easier to make? You've got to make one. If you've got to pick one, you're going to pick the false positive, that there's something out there when there's not. So evolution has basically selected for a certain kind of mistake. It's selected for making, for assuming there's something there. Whether it's that rustle in the grass being a tiger, whether it's that lightning bolt being, you know, Thor uh, throwing meow meow around, or uh, any of the other kinds of superstitious beliefs that we have, that systematic selection for one kind of error over another. It explains an awful lot about why we are um, the way we are. Okay, so the next bit I want to get into... Um, blah, 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 blah. Okay, yeah. Um, how exactly do we uh, believe in, um, in bullshit? We tend to make mistakes in three areas. We tend to have three varieties of mistakes. First of all, what I'm going to call errors of perception. We tend to overemphasize how, how reliable our senses are. Two, we tend to make errors of cognition. We use a lot of shortcuts in our thinking that get the right answer often enough, especially if you're dealing with that situation that we evolved from but no longer live in, but it gets the wrong answer often enough nowadays to be a real concern because we now exist in a context we did not really evolve for. And then we tend to make errors of logic, the rules we use to process information, to reach conclusions, is often seems logical, it feels logical, but it's not. It's actually fallacious and it will lead us to the, um, the wrong example. So. Uh, I don't know how many times people have heard somebody say something. I know what I saw, you know. 
Um, they, you know, they, I saw a UFO. I saw a Bigfoot. I saw uh, someone had a, uh, a Lake Champlain monster out here, you know, Champy and so forth. So, um, and where's our picture going? There we go. Okay. So I know, uh, I know what I saw. We greatly overestimate how good our eyes are. I'm going to pick on eyes, but this, you know, you can fit in all of our senses for this. We look at our eyes as recorders of information. And we look at our memory as recording that information and filing it away. In fact, every time you see something, every time, even right now, you guys, you guys think that you're seeing me up here uh, talking about this weird picture. In fact, what's really happening is a whole bunch of information is coming at you. Your brains are picking and madly going through all of that information. And then they're throwing the brain's best guess of what's actually happening up to your brain, all in a split second, and that's what you perceive. Your brain's real job is pattern recognition, and it's looking at this pattern of visual, uh, this visual field and trying to make sense of it. And it gets it right most of the time, but it makes mistakes in certain specific areas. One of those is we tend to see patterns that don't exist. We tend to, we're, we're so good at seeing patterns that sometimes we see patterns that simply aren't there. Now, anybody know where this picture was taken? It's a little far away. And Mars, right, it's Mars, right. And I don't know how well you can see it, but right in here, there's um, what was called a crab. Now, in, in, deference to the, in deference to the dearly departed David Bowie, I'm going to say it's a spider from Mars. Um, and you can see him hiding right in there. So really what happened is NASA makes all of its photos available. Um, there's terabytes of data. And people, you know, I presume, you know, in dark basements will go through these files uh, until they find one which they're like, I knew it! You know, spiders on Mars! NASA knew about it. They're hiding it from us. Those fuckers! You know. <laughs> um, but what if so it's a mollusk? It could be, yeah. It could yeah, be a mollusk. I don't, I don't know, yeah. I mean, whatever crazy you're into, man, you know, uh, it's, it's, all, it's all good. It's a weird rock, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a thing called um, pareidolia. Pareidolia is recognizing visual, visual patterns that aren't real. Yeah, right? Right, so here we have... Um, here we have a grilled cheeses. We all good? There we go. All right. The grilled cheeses got us all a little a little excited. Okay, so let's let's bring it back. Yeah. So we tend to recognize faces where they don't exist, and that can lead to some erroneous um, conclusions. Now, spiders on Mars and grilled cheeses faces is, is, is funny. It's less funny when you realize how much the police depends upon visual eyewitness testimony to make decisions about who to charge with crimes and how much juries depend upon that testimony to decide who to convict for those crimes. Um, so why are Kose, uh, Kaiser Sose and the boys uh, up here? I don't know if anybody's ever had to, hopefully no one's ever had to be in a police lineup on either side of it, but the way it typically works is you don't necessarily recognize the person who robs you. You look for whose face is the closest fit 
for uh, who robbed you. And that you, almost never do you say, no, he's not there. They'll say, well, it looks the most like number three. Uh, and then if you happen to be number three, but you didn't do anything wrong, that sucks for you. So our inability to, our, our overestimation of our own senses can lead us to some conclusions that are, that are fairly, um, can be quite, uh, quite, uh, quite damaging. Okay. Um, <laughs> So this is, uh, help me with her name, I blanked on her name. Teresa, Teresa Caputo, thank you. Okay, well, well, we'll talk about why Teresa, um, that blood-sucking monster, is, uh, is up there in a moment. Um, so uh, the point I want to make now is our brains tend to use lots of shortcuts. And one of the shortcuts that our brains, um, that our brains use is called confirmation bias, that we tend to accept evidence which confirms what we already believe and we tend to reject, maybe not even notice, evidence which contradicts what we believe. How many people here have kids? A few number. Now how many people notice that their children when they eat like a pound of pixie sticks get a little hyper? Yeah. Now, in fact, there's been, you don't give your, your kid pixie sticks. That's good for you. Okay. Uh, so, um, now, in fact, there's been studies that show that, that child hyperactivity doesn't really have a lot to do with sugar intake. Uh, it's mostly the fact that you expect the kid to be hyper, so you notice when they are. You don't notice all the times they eat sugar, and in fact, they're just, they're just fun. You're calling bullshit on me, in fact, or I can see you calling bullshit. It's okay. Um, so how do, so there, there are a whole range of what we call cognitive biases, shortcuts in our thinking that often work but fail just often enough that um, they, can be, uh, they can be really problematic. So I would recommend you go and Google uh, cognitive bias. Confirmation bias is one of the biggest ones. If, if you learn something new and it really seems to fit with what you already passionately believe, excuse me, about something, that should not be a comforting feeling. That should actually be a red flag, a warning sign that maybe you need to look a little more closely uh, into what it is that you believe. Now, how does that, how does that relate to, um, to psychics? Psychics is something which I've brought into my courses um, on a few occasions. Uh, that make a pretty good teaching tool for talking about skepticism. A lot of people uh, believe in, um, in psychics. Um, and in fact, psychics have a, a trick that makes it seem like they know things about you. It's called cold reading. Um, I, again, I'm not going to go into a whole detail about, about what that involves, but basically they're really good at reading body language and psychology and making it seem like they know things about you that they, uh, that they really don't. But they also depend upon some of these shortcuts. And they know that these shortcuts generally put ourselves in the best light. As I say here, our brains make us the hero of our own story. So we never want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to deal with awkward uh, situations. If you go into, if you're, if you're a believer and you go into one of Teresa Caputo's readings, right off the bat she knows you're predisposed to believe or you probably wouldn't be there to, uh, in, in the first place. And they'll throw out a blast of, of, uh, of predictions and what will happen is you will remember the one that hits you, the one that actually fits, 
And all the ones they get wrong, you'll explain away. You won't, you won't even notice them, okay? So we remember the hits. We don't remember the misses, and that gives the illusion of legitimacy to people like Teresa uh, Caputo, who, and don't let her, her smile fool you, she is in the business of using human desperation and frailty to rob people of vast sums of money, using her understanding of some of these, uh, of some of these cognitive uh, shortcuts. There are other cognitive biases, but in the interest of time, um, I'm, going to, uh, uh, I'm going to move on. Now, um, you didn't think there'd be actual science today, I apologize. Um, but um, there actually is no science on that page, um, or there's bad science on, uh, on, uh, on that page. I want to talk about logic at this point. The rules that we use for logic are often fallacious. They're broken. They're, they're fouls in the game of logical arguments. Um, and again, if you, want to have, if you want to go way down a Google rabbit hole, Google logical fallacy, and there are endless pages that will take you um, through these elaborate typologies of ways in which you can screw up your thinking. Um, some of them are pretty, are, are pretty, but there are some that are, that are, more, uh, are more obvious than others. The, the ad hominem fallacy. Uh, if you can't criticize somebody's idea, uh, criticize the person themselves. So uh, you, can't, uh, you can't trust Rafferty because... Um, he goes to a bar and he just doesn't even drink. He just stands there talking about science the whole time. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. Just means that there's something about me that you that you uh, that you disagree with, or the um, the argument from authority. Uh, throw a lab coat on someone and then they say uh, fruit juice cleanses will rid the toxins from your body, and you might want to also include a coffee enema, and that will help balance your chakras, and you'll be uh, a much live a much uh, more toxin-free life. Again, because I've got the accoutrements, the the symbolism of professional authority, people are more likely to listen to me, even though everything I just said was utter bullshit and made absolutely no sense. Uh, what? Uh, Whatso, um, uh, whatso, uh, whatsoever. Boom, boom, boom. Moving along. Um, the argument from antiquity. Uh, people have been. Um, this actually got to be a big deal at the last Olympics, and uh, when um, when some of the um, uh, some of the Olympic swimmers had these circular scars on their back. That's from cupping. Cupping is a process where you take a hot glass and you place it against someone's skin. It creates a vacuum. And it's supposed to suck the toxins out of your um, out of your body, leaving a giant hickey uh, on your back. Michael Phelps had them, and a few other people of, of uh, uh, I'm sure Lochte's body was covered with with various hickeys. Okay. Um, leave that alone. Okay. Um, well, uh, the story was uh, cupping is an ancient art that goes back to uh, the Middle Ages. Well, so freaking what? So did burning witches. Just because something is old doesn't mean that it's actually useful. Or they'll say, well, all of the, all of the best swimmers were doing an argument from popularity. Just because something is popular doesn't mean it's right. These are all broken logical arguments. But where it crops up most often in science has to do with uh, broken attempts to, uh, a lot of science is looking for correlations between variables and trying to decide 
if those um, if those correlations are real, if they're meaningful uh, or not. So here we have a um, uh, we have a, a correlation. I don't know how much of this you can you can read. Uh, this is actually from an anti-vaccine website. But on the um, on the y-axis, it shows autism rates, and that's the yellow line. So autism is climbing, and uh, the histogram, the blue bars uh, at the bottom, um, are showing. Uh, it says cumulative mercury exposure through childhood vaccines in 19 to 36 months old uh, surveys. So smoking gun, you would think autism completely co-varies uh, with um, with mercury. Uh, ingestion. Okay, there's a few problems with this uh, with this graph. First of all, um, they cheated by stopping it in 1996. In fact, they stopped using mercury. You can see mercury dropping off at the top. Mercury dropped off entirely, and autism kept going. So they cut off the part of the graph that contradicts the point that they want to make. But you can make it look nice by charting it up with uh, with, with a nice figure. That's point one. Two. The kind of mercury that they use is of a variety which um, your body actually clears quite rapidly. It's not bioavailable. It has no effect on your body whatsoever, unlike another type of mercury which actually will, will um, uh, retain uh, within, um, within, your, uh, within your systems. Ethyl mercury versus methyl mercury. Okay. And then finally, the reason autism has been going up can be entirely explained by um, earlier and earlier diagnoses. We've gotten better at diagnosing it, so we're just diagnosing more kids because we catch it earlier, and also expanding the number of disorders or of symptoms that we actually classify uh, as autism. But because this one little meme, this idea that vaccines and mercury and autism are connected, a lot of people really thought that this association was, um, was pretty powerful. But you can find spurious associations for almost anything. Um, so here we have autism rates are skyrocketing, uh, as is organic food consumption. And those who are mo more math-minded than I will will tell you that an R of 0.9971 and a p-value, uh, a, a four sigma p-value, that's some pretty fucking solid association that's going on right there, right? But it's totally meaningless. There's no fact there. So a huge part of science is we found an association. Is there any causative relationship between that? We tend to assume if A happens, then B happens when in fact it can be quite a bit more complex. My favorite, I didn't actually have time to find the figure, but uh, drownings in pools closely co-varies with the number of movies starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> and I think that one might be real. I think people might actually be, I think they might actually be intentionally drowning themselves after seeing movies starring Nicolas Cage. Okay, so. Look up your logical fallacies and don't just use those. I love to pick, I love to find my wife committing logical fallacies and be like, aha, come hawk, ergo, propter hawk, honey. Um, she does not like that game. Um, but I really like the sofa. Okay. Um, but also play it on yourself. Realize that, oh, okay, I'm, I'm doing that thing. Damn, nuts. Okay. I should stop, I should stop making, I, I shall stop making fallacious arguments. Okay. Um, 
where are we? Yeah, okay. Um, then there's this asshole. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, the final point, or this, uh, the, the penultimate point, I guess, that I want to make is that um, the media makes this all so much worse. Um, the internet means that once a bullshit idea gets out there, it is so easy for it to propagate people who have maybe, people who believe that NASA is hiding moon crabs, or I guess they'd be Mars crabs, um, used to be on their own in a harmless basement somewhere, you know. Now they have chat rooms and they can all get together in a big echo chamber and, 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 uh, and, and talk about their conspiracies um, uh, together. Um, so once ideas get started, and, and even, even the so-called legitimate, I guess what it is now, the fake media, but what used to be the real media, um, has its own problems. So for example, here we have a, um, a London newspaper, and it's got a really great headline, the, um, the children's jigsaw and book set for three pounds is a really great deal, um, and, and we really feel sorry for the, four, the five Britons who lost their life, and Kate looks great. But I'm really talking about the cancer thing. Um, Cancer, danger, and bacon. Eating processed meat as bad as smoking. Okay, that is a that is a powerful um, headline, right? That grabs you, um, and it is in the category of being true-ish, but crazily misleading. If you actually read it, you find yes, but the study was done on a very small number of people over a very short period of time with relatively poor controls. Um, so, you know, for example, did they? determine uh, genetic history of cancer predisposition? No, 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 no. We're not going to bother with that. Um, when in fact the results were, and I have to actually read this because it's a little lengthy, um, bacon as bad as smoking sells better than, quote, both bacon and smoking are known to be associated with cancer, yet 15 to 20 percent of colorectal cancers can be associated with processed meat consumption, as opposed to 80 percent of lung cancers being due uh, to smoking. So the reality is quite a bit more complex, but in order to sell an ad and so forth, in order to get you buying those jigsaw sets, um, they, they give you the, the, the sexy headline that is truthish but misleading. Leaving aside the fact that there are hugely popular venues for utter bullshit. Dr. Mehmet Oz, a board-certified thoracic surgeon who really should know better, his show spews out endless amounts of bullshit, and yet uh, it is um, charismatic and pleasant bullshit, which sells uh, its popular bullshit that sells lots of ads. Um, it's hard enough to combat irrational thinking when you got this guy popping up in everybody's living room um, trying to tell them to eat green coffee bean uh, extracts. Okay. Um, Oops, wrong way. Okay. So how to live a skeptic life? What can, what can you do? Um, I mean, what I do is I never miss an opportunity to talk about this. As I said, it's a big part of my, my teaching these days. Um, but what can you do in general to live a, um, uh, a, uh, a skeptical life? Um, so I like to put this in, um, when I talk to my students, I say... Uh, if somebody makes a claim, how should you respond? You know, someone says, um, I saw a UFO, aliens are real. That's the claim that, that, that comes to you. 
your first thought should be, I didn't even put this here on here, but should you engage at all if somebody really <laughs> believes bullshit? You know, the answer is usually no. Okay, people will you know for for one thing, if you prove them absolutely wrong, if you give them all of the evidence why what they saw wasn't an alien spacecraft, what you end up with, I'm not, I'm not really thinking, I'm reading here, right there. What you end up with at the end of that is someone who believes in alien spacecraft even harder than before you stopped talk, started talking to them. There's a backfire effect. People don't like to be told they're wrong, so they kind of go, like, well, fuck you, I'm going to believe even harder now. What do you think of that? You know? um, I generally will only intervene in, in two circumstances. One, if there's an audience of unconvinced onlookers who might not have made up their mind one way or the other, and I think they might get carried along with it, it's generally not worth it arguing with true believers because you just you, you can't convince them. Um, it's not worth your effort. Or if someone's life or well-being or safety is at stake, if somebody is saying, um, I was just diagnosed with liver cancer, but I'm going to treat it holistically using uh, fruit juice and uh, diet, that's a serious problem, they're going to die, and then even though you know they probably won't listen to you, you have a moral obligation to try to convince them to the best that you can. Okay, so first step is, should you engage or not? You've decided to engage. The first thing you have to do is assess the plausibility of their claim. We usually leave this out. We usually look at a claim as true or false, factually based or not factually based, and that actually leaves up what I call the, the FAP first assess plausibility. Um, given what you already know about a subject, how likely is the claim to be true? So we'll go back to my alien spacecraft uh, uh, question. What do we already know? We know that space is unimaginably vast. We know that it is prohibitively costly to move even tiny amounts of mass, even short distances within the vast gulfs of space any technology that could literally move between the stars would almost certainly leave signs that would be visible to our, uh, our best astronomers. Uh, and that everything we know about physics tells us there's a hard speed limit in moving through, uh, moving through space, that being C, the speed of light, that is actually pretty darn slow when you talk about galactic distances. So all of those things, none of them rule out the fact that there could be aliens coming to Earth, but they, they lower the probability so low that it's really not even worth engaging with the claim. That there's, there's, it brings it down to effectively zero, even though we can't bring it down to literally zero. But okay, suppose somebody makes a claim that you can say, well, okay, that's, that's unusual, but it's plausible. I'll, I'll entertain it. You can then start asking for data. Let's go back to my fruit juice uh, example. Fruit juice cures liver cancer. Okay. Um, well, you've got to demand evidence. And you don't just demand any evidence, you demand high-quality data. What does that mean? Does it mean that, well, my friend Larry, no, no offense, Larry, that just came up randomly. My friend Larry had liver cancer, and he took fruit juice. Is that fruit juice? Uh, not exactly. Not exactly? Okay. Um, it's of a sort, right. Um, uh, and he walked away fine, full remission. He's great. Okay. That's actually very convincing to a lot of people. It's a good story. We like stories way more than we like facts. 
Again, remember the ape, the monkey from, from earlier on? We evolved from that guy, and that guy loves stories. Not so big on facts. They like gather around the campfire, tell stories about things. That was convincing. Unfortunately, it's not very good, uh, it's not very good data. Or suppose they don't have anecdotes, they've actually got a study. No, look, it was published in a scientific paper on a sample of 11 people, um, three of whom uh, were alcoholics and already had uh, severe, uh, severe liver problems. And um, they didn't really blind the study very well, so people knew whether they were getting fruit juice or not getting fruit juice, but boy, look at that, look at that p-value, you know. So it's a low-quality study with very poor, uh, very poor data. You want something where, you know, okay, a sample of 20,000 people or more were studied for a long, it's called a longitudinal study, where you look at them for a long period of time, rigorous blinding between control groups and so forth. Where was it published? Was it published in the Journal of um, Fruit Juice Studies? Uh, the editor of which was also the author of the paper. That actually happens, not literally fruit juice studies, but, but things like that. There was a study of Bigfoot DNA uh, that was rejected. Well, I say Bigfoot DNA. It was a study of DNA that someone said was from Bigfoot. Um, what kind of DNA, I want to know. Uh, but the, um, uh, but the, uh, they couldn't get it published in a real journal because the real journals were like, <laughs> okay, thank you, bye-bye. Um, uh, so they made their own journal, which has one volume with one article edited by the author of the paper about the DNA. Okay, um, that is not what we call high-quality data. That. Yes. Yeah, let's get real. We're in Schenectady. GE published a bunch of papers saying that PCBs were completely safe, and uh, yeah, you know, well, they uh, did that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exa that, that, that's that's a much more serious example of what I'm talking about. In-house journals. I'm not saying they're absolutely wrong, but they're certainly in-house. I, I know in-house pharmaceutical journals are far more likely to find. So a journal owned by the pharmaceutical company is far more likely to say this drug works and is safe than an independent journal is likely to do. Follow so that's that's a great yeah. Follow the money exactly. Um, prioritize consensus. One journal article is useful and interesting, but you got to place it in the broader context. One maverick climate scientist says human climate, human emissions are not contributing to climate change. And all of uh, you know, the, the, the Freedom Caucus flips out in all, all happiness. Um, but in fact, you put that one study in context with the 98% of existing studies that say just the opposite. You gotta go not with what one scientist says, but how well that fits with the overall understanding on a topic. That is not to say that sometimes some one person or team doesn't find something that really does overturn a given field of study. It happens, but not very rarely. And it's not where a wise person would, um, would, uh, would put their money. Um, and then finally, I would say, is to, um, and I've, I've alluded to this a few times, is to be aware that it's, it's really easy to find logical errors or to find cognitive biases or to read a study that you happen to want to agree with. Um, it's really easy to see that happening in somebody else. It's very much more difficult to notice it on yourself. So 
try to live a skeptical life, be most skeptical um, of, uh, of yourself. As I, as I said, when things make perfect sense and justify your existing beliefs, that should be a warning sign, not a, um, not a reassurance. I'm thinking back to my own dissertation research where I got one lab result which basically validated my entire dissertation design and my reaction was stark terror to be like, oh shit, I'm screwed, I'm never going to get my degree, this is too good to be true. Turned out I was right, but I had the right instinct to look at it logically and to look at it critically. So I'll close with a quote by the, um, by the great uh, um, physicist, bongo-playing, wife-stealing nudist, Richard Feynman. Um, I may have made up the nudist thing, but it just kind of seemed to fit. Okay. Um, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Thanks a lot. If anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Yes? So, the question about the One of these unstable. I feel like you'll buche when you guys down, <laughs> down, down in the pit like that. Yeah, go, go ahead. So, we talked about the positive and the negative of the eight monkeys. Yes, yeah, the, the type one and type two errors. What, 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 well, there's, there's a cartoon for that, you know. What if, what if, what if we make the world a better place and it's all for nothing, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, a a absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's safer to assume it's real and act accord. Except, of course, it, it, the, the 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 other side for that though is it's hard. You, any kind of real serious grappling with climate change. By the way, we, it may already be too late. Unfortunately, the the the, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is way over 440 parts per million, right? Um, that said, um, you know, the, um, uh, the damage to the economy, even in the best scenarios, is going to be extreme. So there are people saying, well, we'll just ride it out. Technology will, will find a way through that problem. You know, personally, I agree with you. Shouldn't you go with what is, you know, even if you're wrong, you're still going to have positive effects, right? Yes, please. Well, elsewhere in the world, there's less resistance to alternative energy. Yep. But here in New York State, where the Rockefellers actually began the industrial empire, that you know we really are in the center of a place that was bought off in terms of science. And uh, so you have people saying, "Oh no, 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 profit." Yeah. And they are actually building pipelines. Yeah, I mean, if you look, if you look at, um, I mean, other other countries that have the same kind of constraints as far as uh, energy needs that we do, maybe not to the same degree. But I mean, even China, you know, China is, is, is ahead of us when it comes, and they, they like bathe in coal over in, in, in China. Um, but they're way ahead of us in developing a lot of green energy uh, uh, technologies, in part because culturally they are more used to looking ahead, whereas we tend to look next election, next election, next election. Money, money, money. In the short term, not the long term. So there are, I'll put my anthropology hat back on, cultural differences that matter as well. So uh, you can find us at our website, which is 
humbio.org, H-U-M-B-I-O dot O-R-G, or on Facebook at Human Biology Association, or with our Twitter handle, uh, which is at humbiosos, or H-U-M-B-I-O-A-S-S-O-C. You can find me there, tweeting on behalf of Human Bio. So if it seems like my personal account is closely synced to the Hume Bio Association, you might not be wrong. Uh, our next podcast which is going to be awesome. Who are we talking to next, Kara? I believe we're talking to Andrea Wiley. Yes, we are. Andrea Wiley just gave a Binden lecture. What's our whole series called? Here at the University of Alabama, in our department, we have a series called Biocultural Anthropology and Health in honor of the person I replaced, Jim Binden, so the Binden lectures. Andrea Wiley is a biocultural anthropologist from Indiana University who studies milk and also has studied, uh, did a study of biocultural anthropology and how that term is used. So we have a recording of her, and we're going to be giving her a call in a few months and interviewing her. And we're open to other ideas. If you don't want these podcasts to be just from Albany or Alabama, please contact us. You can get a hold of me uh, at C-O-C-O-B-O-C-K at albany.edu. And Chris? Yeah, and I'm at C D as in Dana, my middle name, L Y N N at U A dot edu, where you can tweet me, message me at Twitter, C H R I S underscore L Y. Yeah, so if you have any interesting podcast ideas or any recorded talks that you would like to have us feature on the Human Biology Podcast, we would love to hear it. Right on. Thanks, Kara. Thank you all for listening.